Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here with episode 39 of the podcast that explores our place in time. One of the more interesting things for me about this place, this moment in the meta history of life on Earth, is how the way that we understand and structure knowledge and the transmission of knowledge is changing due to our sudden and <laughs> nearly catastrophic access to a world's worth of human traditions, plant medicine, intelligence, etc. That suddenly the scope of admissible evidence has blossomed and we are finding wisdom and insight in so many places that were either occulted, you know, that were esoteric forms of knowledge or were locked up in places we would never find them. Like, again, the plant medicine traditions and the pre-modern ways of knowing that we have shut out on our march through modernity. But the problem with that, of course, is that we are overwhelmed by all this information. We have not yet adapted to an age of quick and inexpensive answers. And what do we do with this? How do we adjust as human beings? And how will our educational institutions survive this profound transformation? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Hunter Motts. Hunter is a very intelligent and entertaining dude who I encountered for the first time on Chris Ryan's Tangentially Speaking podcast. And when I heard him talking about all of this stuff and when I heard him engaged with Chris in a pretty profound conversation about the relationship between evolution and entropy and the way that the emergence of order in our world is a function of the metabolism that also increases the rate of decay. I knew that this guy and I were going to get along. So I'm excited to share that with you today and uh, stick around for the weeks to come. We've got some pretty extraordinary interviews with Hana Faith Yada of the Visionary Art World, archivist Andrew O'Keefe, the mythographer and historian and founder of the Lindisfarne Association, William Irwin Thompson, is going to be on the show. That's a huge win for all of us. That'll be a special two-part episode. So, yeah, um, I apologize for taking so long to get this one out. I was just out at the Oregon Eclipse Festival in uh, Big Summit Prairie, Oregon, having my life reprogrammed by the experience of a total eclipse. And I'm sure that wherever you were on the planet for that one, you felt it, even if you didn't get to see it. It's been a pretty profound month of change, and I hope that those changes are treating you well. I'm headed out to Burning Man this week to record some special interviews for Future Fossils to give some talks on creativity, catastrophe, and our responsibility to our technological creations, play some music, some new electric guitar sets I'll be coming back with. I uh, fell in love with an electric up here in Portland, so that'll be a new treat for all of the Patreon subscribers, who I should take a moment to thank specifically for helping me continue to do this show in a sustainable way. I really believe that gathering these conversations is one of the most important ways that I can serve the knowledge transmission in these new emergent post-academic forms that I can contribute in some meaningful way to the global conversation 
And everybody who's donating two or five dollars a month on Patreon, you are my heroes and I am indebted to you. But of course, I am grateful to you simply for listening to this show. I think it's wonderful that you and I can agree on this particular horizon of experience and that I hope that you, you find meaning and, and value in this. Even if you can't support the show financially, ultimately that's not what's important. What's important is that you're benefiting from it and that you spread the good word. If you do, tell a friend, give this show a five-star review on iTunes, whatever it is. I am super appreciative because it keeps these conversations rolling. Last note, if you are out at Burning Man this week or know someone who will be, I will be camped at Camp Soft Landing, 930 in G. I'm giving talks there on Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon. I'm playing music there on Wednesday and Thursday nights. And then I'll be presenting a special musical performance at Burners Without Borders at 245 and Esplanade on Friday. So look out for that stuff on my Facebook page. I just posted the full schedule to Facebook, uh, Michael Garfield. And again, if you want to support the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. And with that, I will cease with this shenaniganry and get you on to one of the more fabulous and entertaining conversations I've had with somebody in a long time, Hunter Motts. going on oh man i'm doing all right how you doing i'm living the dream because i'm just uh, watching videos of you <laughs> that's uh somebody's dream for sure <laughs> um are you do you do this standing up i do stand up like a boss like a boss if i don't then those of us who live on the computer we it's what is it sitting is the new smoking yeah 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 yeah. and i sit Um, all the time so it's no good so um anything ready to roll yeah anything you want to know before we get started or no i just uh you know having read your stuff and having watched some of your stuff i think uh this is going to be some amazing idea sex or uh voltronification um (laughs) I think there's going to be very much a, a lot of us, uh, you know, building off each other. Yeah. Well, as far as Voltronification is concerned, one of the things I I want to be sure to talk to you before this is over is the future of human collaboration and uh-huh. and uh, how it is that we create knowledge in an age of web-assisted cognition, like brain implants mm-hmm. and such. But let's let's start easier or like earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the whole, the whole framing here is that I heard you on Chris Ryan's show on Tangentially Speaking, mm-hmm. and you're so eloquent and you have so many really well-thought-out perspectives. And I was like, holy crap, here's a guy that I really agree with, which is honestly rare these days even among the people that occupy this sort of weird little niche of talking head person thinking about science and psychology in the future often i find that there's like a highlander effect where like if someone's too much like me i hate them Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but it, but in your case, in your case, it was different. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, introducing <laughs> my listeners to you and to your thoughts and your work. So thanks for taking the time. Well, likewise. I mean, uh, send send me all this stuff, and uh, I'll share it in the mixed mental arts community. I will do that. Awesome. So you, let's see, where's the best place to start? Probably that you're the author of a book about education. That is a true statement. Um, so in, a, in, a, in an age of alternative facts, that is a fact that is not alternative. It's actually uh, quite true. Um, and it really sort of came out of my own experiences. You know, there's the old joke, it's not research, it's me-search. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I grew up all over the world and was moving between all of these cultures and couldn't, you know, the one thing that I'd sort of figured out was that at least in the little bubble that I was living in, that, you know, smart was a thing that was respected. So I wasn't really clear on what this thing called smart was, but I knew I wanted to have it. You know, it's that very sort of primal emotional of like, ah, that's where it's at, must have that thing. And in the process, picked up a sort of bunch of very unhelpful ideas about, you know, math genes and some people having a natural ear for languages or not. But at the same time, you know, sort of my exposure to different cultures was confusing enough that it was like, you know, among my dad's family who were Dutch, learning a lot of languages was a perfectly normal thing. And then among my mom's family who were in Kansas, you know, it was like, you speak more than one language? That's a little weird. Um so, you know, I, I was already thinking about that stuff and then moved out to L.A. and was paying my bills tutoring and just heard all these crazy theories. And it sort of ended up being uh, the straight A conspiracy was really this stepping stone into, you know, understanding, you know, that thinking and feeling are always linked, um, understanding, you know, how beliefs are transmitted uh, through cultures and understanding how much those sort of mental constructs affect our choices, our decisions, the things that we do. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's the deal. So I, you know, in the rhetorical framing of this show, whereby I'm imagining that our largest audience is still unborn and will, is one mm -hmm. day sifting through the, the digital archives of this moment and trying to understand what it was like to be a person at this time. I think there's a bit of like expository, info that we need on like just how fucked up education and learning <laughs> is in this time you know like the 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 latin root of of education is ex ducere like to lead out of and yet mm -hmm. the entire system that we have uh you know as uh it was lewis mumford wrote about it and then charles eisenstein cited Lewis Mumford in The Ascent of Humanity. That's my reference. Uh, you know, talks about how the whole thing was set up to prepare people for factory work. So it's actually mm -hmm. it's actually not education. It's education. It's, it's leading people into well, it's, the factories. Well, it's, specifically, it's indoctrination, right? You know, we're focused on, like, shoving things into people's heads. Now, it may not be indoctrination with fascist or communist ideology, but it's indoctrination with sort of a set of very core skills, right? The three R's, which uh, are not three R's, which already tells you how many problems there are with our educational system. So, so for future generations, the three R's are reading, 
writing, and arithmetic. And uh, that's an R, a W, and an A. So, you know, already you get a sense of just how screwed up the educational system is. Um, but, yeah, specifically there's this uh, quote from Woodrow Wilson from back in the day when he was, I think, uh, it was when he was governor of New Jersey, and he was speaking to the National Associations of, of High School uh, Teachers, and he said, you know, what we want is an educational system which can produce two classes of people. The first class, which must by necessity be a much larger class, is those who are so switched off to thinking and learning that they're only suited for the dullest kind of manual labor, and then a much smaller class, which has the full benefits of a liberal arts education. And you know, by that metric, our educational system is a stunning success, <laughs> right? It, uh, I mean, the majority of humans hate learning and books and, you know, really don't think that's for them, don't think that they'll ever be good at these things, think that to even have the possibility of being good at these things, you know, you've got to get into these super selective schools and spend a quarter of a million dollars, and, you know, then you get, like, a fancy talisman piece of paper that says that you are qualified to think for yourself and that, you know, your voice counts. And it's just an utterly insane system. Um, and one of my favorite things, you know, I, I reference the Wizard of Oz a lot, and uh, there's this great moment where the scarecrow, right, has, you know, goes to the wizard, and what he wants is a diploma. And so, you know, the wizard whips out this fancy piece of paper and makes him a doctor of thinkology um, from the Universitatis E Pluribus Unum. And, um, you know, he says, you know, there are people with brains no smarter than you who think important thoughts all day. <laughs> but what they have that you don't have is a degree. So, you know, I think that, you know, how will future generations look back on us? I think they're going to look back at this all as like the most insane cargo cult built on a whole bunch of shitty, bizarre assumptions. And they're like, man, they thought that this is how you get prosperity was that you go get special black robes and a magic piece of paper and a funky little hat. And, you know, they had no clue what they were doing. And yet another one of the ways that I see the big shift happening right now is in line with Harvard developmental psychologist Robert Keegan. He wrote a book called mm -hmm. In Over Our Heads, The Mental Demands of Modern Life. And this was a book that I read in the one year I took of grad school, speaking of overeducation and you know, trained consumers. Although I got to say the the program I went to was great. But anyway, uh, he, he talks about in that book how the different levels of adult psychological development, which are largely ignored by modern society, we just sort of assume that once somebody has been certified an adult at age 21, you know, that they have their booze card and now it's done, you know, they're not going to grow up at all until they're like in their fifties at some point. And then they, everything comes crashing down and they realize that they're <clears throat> getting old and they're going to die one day. And then what they, they look, you know, whatever they're trying to find in the glove box of the new car that isn't there. And they, they re responsibly sage into eldership with absolutely no training or cultural support somehow. So in that, 30 or 40 years in between there, psychologists have actually mapped out this whole gradient of ego development into like construct aware, ego aware levels. And one of the big ones and one of the ones that we see sort of writ large 
I, I noticed that you said in your one of your medium articles that child development and the child education is sort of a microcosm of the whole history of the human species that we we grow up mm-hmm. through our sort of magical traditions and rituals and our mythology and into a more you know rational and perspectival approach and so there's this fulcrum point in both cultural evolution where we started seeing this around the time of the European enlightenment where we moved out of placing the authority outside of ourselves in the priesthood in the divine right of kingship and we we started creating modes of inquiry like the you know scientific method as we know it today where which is actually way older, but like it began to, it started being formalized and institutionalized around that time. And we started placing the authority for knowledge within the individual. And that there's something, something like that is going on in, a, in society on a much bigger scale right now where we're working out these issues of authority. And so this is all to, you know, in, in response to, this issue of the piece of paper, the accredited diploma, the cap and gown, all of these things that for a while actually did work really well as measures of a person's, you know, as, as signifiers of a person's authority, of their expertise. But like because of the exponentiation of knowledge in our world now, it seems like even like I've got friends doing postdoctoral work at UT who are saying, how do you even keep up with, even in the most narrowly prescribed niche, it's impossible to keep up with all of the relevant publications going on. So the whole basis of expertise is eroding now. And we're at that point where it seems like the whole society is is coming into a, a kind of enlightenment on one hand or a reckoning where the sources of authority that we've turned to in the past are no longer capable of bearing that authority. Yeah, it's dead. It's dead. I mean, the old, the old structure, right? I mean, so much of this is technological and financial and all of that, you know, books used to be really, really expensive. You know, they were all sort of cloistered together in monasteries or libraries or, you know, universities And, uh, you know, so you would have to go to a physical place to get those. Well, you know, the walls of the ivory tower have been falling down for the last 30 years. All this information is increasingly available online anywhere to the entire world because of this, you know, exponential growth of information. There are now 60 million scientific papers, 130 million books. It's literally too much information for a tiny cadre of individuals to try and make sense of. It's going to take seven and a half billion people to really make sense and draw a signal out of all of that noise. So the idea of sort of proprietariness or protectiveness or, you know, I am, you know, qualified to speak about this because I have, you know, fancy letters after my name and a doctor of thinkology just doesn't work anymore. And in 2016, we saw uh, a reformation, right? The beginning of this sort of this break with Rome, right? Or the break with the ivory tower, which is, you know, was Trump, it was Brexit, because fundamentally, there is a social contract that exists between experts or high priests or kings and their people. And it's that 
if you deliver prosperity, you can have power, right? You've shown yourself to be a good steward and to be capable of delivering the good things to us. And the reality is that for, you know, much of the, the sort of the Midwest, the industrial, the old industrial heartlands, they're not getting that prosperity. And so why should I respect the authority of people who don't deliver on what they're supposed to deliver? Now, do these people necessarily understand what to be mad at? No. And so, you know, they just are mad at the authorities and they object to, you know, global warming and they object to whatever it is that they object to. But the, the, what they should really be mad at is the fact that these economic models are bad. They're bad economic models, and they're built on bad assumptions like the rational agent theory and the efficient market hypothesis. And that also the other thing they should be mad at is the, that, you know, the price of massive technological disruption is creative destruction, which has put them out of a job without there being any support to help them transition into this new economy so that everybody can benefit from the new opportunities. So I think the point is, is that the cat is out of the bag. And since you're a paleontologist by training, right, the extinction event has happened. The meteorite has hit and the old, the dinosaurs are now like, ah, you know, like there's so much dust. The iridium layer is coming down. This is terrible. Our whole ecosystem is being fucked up. And now a whole new ecosystem, a whole new intellectual ecosystem is emerging um, and I think that the only one that makes sense in terms of intuitions of authority is to have no human authority and that the only ultimate authority is reality itself. And that, you know, we can't rely on fancy pieces of paper to convince people of our point of view. We have to be able to point to the evidence. We have to all be working on improving our understanding. And we all have to, instead of ganging up on each other, gang up on that problem of 60 million scientific papers, 130 million books, and the amount of information is only going to increase. The other side of this issue is that without the ability to sift through this stuff on an individual level, like the whole, the whole architecture for how we rely on other members of our tribal communities and, yep. and reference them, like the whole thing that expertise grew out of was trust, was being able to believe that your friend saw this thing when they went over the hill and, you know, that there really is a leopard or there really is, a, you know, fruit trees over there or whatever. Oh, you know, I'm sure it was all so simple. It was just it was just giant cats and, <laughs> and foraging fruits. But no, but, you know, whatever the, the thing was. Days when all you had to worry about was an Andrew Sarkis, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, this, you know, this doesn't work now anymore, right? So how do we agree on things like in in a way you know there there seems to be on an on an individual psychological level another dimension of this is when you realize that knowledge is constructed when you realize like you know George Lakoff and Mark Johnson that they talk about this all the time that you know all of our thoughts are in, are grounded in metaphor so the the cognition is embodied and so you know, every fact has an interpretive atmosphere around it. And so you can't, in the, the social dimension of this, it's recognizing that whoever is speaking to you is a fallible human being, you know, in the individual dimension of it, it's not necessarily granting that sort of naive realist benefit of a doubt to your thoughts or your experiences. 
but like without being able to trust some like we we can't possibly make it through all of this information without at some point just drawing the line right and saying this is where the question stops and this is where the myth making begins i mean what do we do well, I think that's the thing. I think you basically have to, uh, and I only just, you know, was thinking about this in this conversation, is, is that think about Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin has an open and public ledger, and anybody who wants to go and view that ledger at any time can go and view that ledger. So essentially, I think that's already what's emergent, right? So if you think about the way that the Wikipedia or something works out, right? The hive mind has come together, brought together all this information, they sorted through all of this, but in practice, this, you know, there's a trail of cookie crumbs, right? And if you want, you can follow that trail of cookie crumbs so that you can work your way back to the source material. So, you know, there's some sentence that's there, and it's a fairly accessible sentence that I can just read casually. But if I don't like that, then I can click and I can follow the citation, and then I can go back to the original paper, and I can go and find the original data, and I can see has that been replicated or not. Now, that's, this is all very early stages in Wikipedia's, you know, sort of version 1.0. I think that ultimately, you know, what we're going to start evolving towards is we're going to start evolving towards a essentially a shared human culture um, where there are a lot of shared assumptions that we have. So if you think about education is a really good example, um, because the point is that learning is really about embracing and analyzing mistakes and seeing how you can use them to improve so that you improve your process. Well, that can be a shared human value. There's no reason, you know, there's no benefit to having somebody who's like, no, I, when I make a mistake, I'm going to deny it. I'm going to blame other people. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to create these fantastic excuses for why it is really the fault of the other political party, right? You know, that sort of accountability, that sort of ownership, and also that sort of willingness to sort of embrace and learn to improve process is something that's going to benefit any human anywhere. Now, how do you get there? Well, more and more of us do that. More and more of us have conversations about that. And then more and more of us benefit from that sort of approach, those sorts of values. And then because humans are socially intelligent, people will look, they will track, they'll say, hmm, you know, oh, wow, this is what makes, you know, Michael Jordan successful. This is what makes Google successful or whoever it is. And then people will increasingly embrace and evolve those values so that you have a shared set of beliefs about that. But one of those shared set of beliefs ultimately comes down to how do we view the information space? And do we view it in terms of a public trust that we're all sort of nurturing and taking care of and that if we take care of it, that it benefits us all? Or are we just trying to, you know, score cheap shots or quick points on each other in order to win some sort of short-term victory? So, for example, let's, uh, let's take, you know, right now you could go around and you could, you know, create a whole bunch of fake news. Now, I could do that, and I understand that there are guys in Macedonia who have made money making fake news, but I'm not willing to do that 
A, because I don't, that's not how I want to make money. I wouldn't feel particularly good about that. And ultimately, I know that even though in the sort of short-term sense that might benefit me, that ultimately I'm fucking up myself, right? Like karma, that will at some point, you know, fuck me up in ways that I can't necessarily track. So I think it's just going to require a very different set of intuitions about how we approach information and, you know, really viewing this information space is something that we have to all tend, we all have to take care of, and that if we take care of it and nurture it, that there are benefits that come to us that aren't necessarily trackable, right? Like the bounty that comes out of having information be well curated, reliable, easily accessible, trustworthy, I don't necessarily track. Like it may lead to some cure to some a disease or a new treatment, or it might lead to some awesome new remix of music, which was partly possible because it was possible for the artist to easily source those raw materials. So the benefits that come to me from the information space, from the hive mind, aren't necessarily directly correlated to what I'm doing, but I can know that I always want to behave in pro-social ways towards that and to call out people when they are behaving in antisocial ways. Mm, yeah, that that whole issue of you know bringing up the blockchain of identity and how mm-hmm. you know identity is the basis for all of this that we can't really track reciprocal exchanges, we can't track the cedars and the leechers, you know we can't identify the the authors or like the bearer of false messages. Like it seems pretty clear that in any system of communicators, you're going to have some small percentage of people that get away with lying that, or right. you know, that, that there, there will always be that short term benefit to cheaters, but that as soon as it reaches above a certain threshold, the value of the message flips, you know, like I was, I was mm-hmm. thinking about the other day about how now so many people watch the new, the evening news and just automatically assume the opposite like the cat's out of the bag. And so people, (laughs) or, you know, that it's part of that decay of uh, legitimacy, that, that crisis of authority. Mm -hmm. But like in that way, you still end up with like the majority of messages in a given communication network uh, are true, or at least, you know, rightly understood. But then there's also the issue that hoaxes and disinformation tend to spread faster than the the debunking and so so what do you do like i mean i don't think it's as simple as just sort of establishing a set of values in that regard uh because this hypothetical society seems like it will still be constantly putting out fires because you're always it's this kind of unfair tilt in the playing board toward we're still running each of us on the sort of resonant, non-critical, you know, you see something, you like it, and you want to share it before you've really like, we don't, basically, we have more time for sharing than we do for like critical analysis and investigative research. So, I mean, that, in a way, well, that seems like the bigger problem. Well, but I think the the, the problem is, is that, you know, um, I certainly used to do that. 
And then uh, one of the things that I that was really helpful for me was uh, William Duresowitz wrote a piece on leadership and solitude that he, I think, delivered as a commencement speech somewhere. And he was saying, you know, what you're really getting when you read something is distilled thought. And if you're reading a blog post, then you're probably getting about an hour or two of distilled thought. If you're reading a book, then you're getting hundreds, thousands of hours of distilled thought. And so, you know, the question is, what is your information diet and what are you sharing and what are you, you know, sort of engaging with? And, you know, I mean, I have to say that I don't really watch news anymore. It's disaster porn. And there's this old intuition that you're supposed to watch news because uh, it's important and you should be informed. But the point is, is that as you're saying with that breakdown of legitimacy, people are realizing that these old sort of 1950s intuitions about what the news is don't fit the reality of what the news is today. And that there are, you know, more reliable or more interesting information sources. So I think that's already switching. But I think that a large part of what we need is that we need a new worldview, right? Humanity needs a worldview. It needs a framework through which to be able to make sense of these sense of the world, to know how to react to things. And then a lot of intelligence is about the ability to choose, right? Interlegere, to choose between, to know the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the shit from the shinola. And so... What you need is you need better and better tools for being able to parse out what comes your way and say, this is garbage, throwing that away, this is gold. And I think that it's not coincidental that a lot of what, you know, our shared framework for making sense of this is evolution. Uh, because evolution is the big meta framework that allows you to make sense of a whole lot of things. And, you know, again, things like, you know, what I loved about the piece that you sent me, you know, exaptation, you know, or Voltron or, you know, idea sex or however you term these ideas, what you have there is this really, really powerful conceptual leap. And it's a powerful conceptual leap from thinking about evolution on a genetic level to thinking about it on an idea level and on a cultural level and on a societal level. And that framework is, you know, what we what, you know, we're really focused on promoting at Mixed Mental Arts, because that is what I think is the real, you know, rallying framework for people to be able to then structure, okay, then how should we structure a global village? And you should structure a global village a lot like you would structure an actual village. And, you know, that means that, you know, you are, you know, you, you, you understand that people have a Dunbar number, that, you know, there's a limited number of relationships that we can individually track. So you need tight communities, but then those have to interlock up into larger and larger units. And then, you know, we have to figure out what are the set standards, of, uh, the shared standards of behavior, the set practices, how are we, you know, making sure that we're supporting each other and mentoring each other? How are we calling out people who are, you know, not behaving in socially appropriate ways and handling them? And that's the point is, is that the success of any human community, whether it's a sports team or a company or a country, rests on culture. It rests on the decisions, the beliefs, the practices of the people in that. And the reality is that, you know, humanity is now a global village. Like, we're there. We all got shoved together by technology, and now we're there. 
But the problem is we don't have a shared global culture. And we don't have the ability to effectively call out people when they are doing things that are socially destructive. And there's a lot of my side bias where, you know, you'll have a shitty behavior. And when it's done by the other team, you're like, it's terrible. They're so bad. And then when it's done by someone on your team, you're like, yeah, well, but he had to do this because, you know, I mean, you know, those other guys are such assholes. Like, we have to defend ourselves. And these are very old patterns in human history. And because they're such old patterns, we have a really good idea of the sorts of things that are going to enable us to handle them. And that is these universalizing movements, right? And that's what a lot of, you know, uh, it's been some empires like Alexander the Great, who was very agnostic about the culture of origin and was like, if you're willing to fight for me, if you're willing to join up, like, I'm down. That's cool. And we'll embrace and incorporate your culture. You know, it's being religious movements like Christianity and Islam, which also had to deal with the problem of tribalism and trying to unify people under a shared idea. And it's America, right? You know, to varying degrees, that's the genius of America is the idea that anyone can be an American. You just have to sign up for this very small minimum set of beliefs and values. And that's what we're doing with mixed mental arts is basically offering an opportunity to, you know, have anybody join this community. And then you can essentially for the first time, you know, we can create a virtual golden age within an online space. And that, you know, the more and more you grow that, the more people will rush in and emigrate to your virtual information space until essentially you have flipped the culture of the entire world. Mm. So one of the things that I like about that or, or notice in there is the the emphasis on recruiting pre-rational, pre-modern human behaviors and habits and attitudes into something that makes use of the entire human being. Like it, so much of the game of supposedly modern rational minds in culture has been to denigrate or repress or dissociate from the the magical thinking and the myth making and you you talked about this uh in one of the articles you wrote on medium where you were talking about richard dawkins talking smack (laughs) on theists and i thought this was so great because because actually you know i i was like I remember years ago, I was like sitting at home furiously writing notes in this book. I was going to send Dawkins this big takedown. And then actually, I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson said something very similar to him a few years ago, basically saying, look, you know, you're not being reasonable because you're not communicating to the audience where they really are. And you know where they are. And yet you're you're still acting out of the inertia of this embedded and unexamined set of assumptions. You said in here. Often when you listen to people, you realize that personifying abstract phenomena, like Richard Dawkins does by with the, the deist blind watchmaker, is actually an incredibly smart workaround for the human brain. The other day, I had a conversation with a Maori man, and he told me why the Maori personify mountains and rivers. When mountains and rivers are people, you take care of them. So it's like... It reminded me of how there was a study a couple years ago where they found that if a driverless car had a name and a human voice and like spoke to you and gave, gave you its name that people were vastly more comfortable riding around in a driverless car that if it was like 
just this faceless, personalityless, robotic thing, it's scary. And I think in a way that's yeah. like there's an issue around corporate personhood that's like that too. It's like they have logos, but they don't have a face. And maybe if it <laughs> this is weird, but like maybe maybe if Walmart had a face I'd be okay er with it, you know? But <laughs> That's an amazing idea. I mean, Walmart, doesn't don't they have that little smiley face that's about rolling the back the prices with the weird little hands? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he doesn't really – he doesn't talk to you. He doesn't understand your needs. No. So I guess I'm, I'm just thinking, like, th- there are it, – it seems, like, critical in all of this that we look at – and again, like this is something that uh, George Lakoff was talking about with respect to the, the political stuff and the issues that the progressivist left have been having in politics lately because they're presenting people with these factual arguments. They're giving numbers and all this stuff, and they're try- they're expecting that this is going to land, and it's totally falling flat because it's not reaching people on the level of an emotional appeal. It's not reaching people in the, like the linguistic matrix that determines the way that they act on a set of values. And it just seems so, so critical that we not critical in that sense uh, of it being like vital that we not throw away the whole human being and that we look at promoting modes of learning and culture that encourage us to bring, you know, the the magical thinking, the ritual, the habit, the mythological obsession, all of these very like ancient human characteristics. So that's yeah, an so incomplete that, thought. No, no, but it's it's a great thought, and I mean the. Um, so there's a couple of artists in uh, London who contacted uh, us, and they sent they sent us. Some, some artwork that they'd done up around what we've been talking about. And uh, they came up with this great slogan, primeval yet contemporary. And that to me is the heart of what we need, which is, is that we want like our human biology, our hardware has not changed in the last 10,000 years, right? Like biologically, we still, you know, we want myth, we want ritual, we want a sense of belonging, we want a sense of embeddedness. But we have all this cool stuff now, right? We have all this technology. We have all of that. You know, we have antibiotics. We have figured out, you know, the, these, all these tools for making sense of reality with, you know, this formalizing of the scientific method. We have all sorts of great stuff. And the challenge is now to evolve a global village that is primeval yet contemporary, that has the best of both worlds. And <clears throat> I think what's interesting is that uh, the the great irony of someone like Richard Dawkins is is that he thinks that in he's in many ways he's smarter than evolution, and you know a lot of what evolution has evolved over this very long period of human history through cultural evolution, right, is actually brilliant. And it's, if you, when you talk to the Maoris or you talk to any of the people who actually live these ways, they you realize they come up with great solutions that provide fantastic pro-social benefits, but that they, you know, if you if you're viewing them from this sort of very atomistic Western perspective, then it just seems like silly folklore and silly magic. And I mean, the other sort of example in terms of personifying is the Japanese. The Japanese personify everything, right? I mean, Shintoism, right? Rocks, 
our gods, you know, rivers, everything. But even they personify objects. Like there's a great Marie Kondo wrote this book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And she literally, so much of it is about purging and get ri- getting rid of things from your house. But she literally has people, you know, take the object that they're going to throw away and look at it and engage with it. And how does it make her feel? And then if it's time to throw it away, she thanks it for its service and for playing an important part in her life, right? Now, these, that sort of behavior may seem silly, right? But that there is a process of emotionally letting go, and there is... Uh, People do hoard, and they hoard because, you know, they're, they're, it's coming from this position of scarcity, right, of like, I need all this stuff because stuff, 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 stuff. And, you know, that's old cultural trauma that, you know, is being passed down for generations and generations. And we're now, a lot of us in the developed world are now not in a position where that's an issue for us. And so what we have to do is we have to flip our feelings around uh, these objects so that we can let them go. And so actually thanking these objects and sort of let it, you know, to flip the emotional dynamic with the object is incredibly smart. Now, if you're Richard Dawkins, you could be like, this is ridiculous. A pencil does not have feelings or a name. And, you know, he's right. But he, you know, in terms of a smart workaround around human psychology, it's actually quite brilliant. And again and again, the more and more you look at these rituals and these cultural practices that a lot of these hunter-gatherer primitives or these other cultures that are non-Western have, they're actually functionally quite useful and functionally quite smart. And, uh, you know, there's a long, long history of people coming in, not understanding a cultural practice and throwing it away. And the great example that Joe Henrik gives in his book, The Secret of Our Success, is nixtamalization, right? So the Aztecs, when they would take corn, they would, they would work in wood ash or burnt seashells. And, you know, of course, this, this, the Europeans come in and they say, this is silly superstition. You can just imagine Richard Dawkins, you know, rolling into Tenochtitlan and saying, what a bunch of rubbish. What are you doing? Wood ash? Why would you eat wood ash, right? <laughs> you know, the point is, is that so they throw away this cultural practice. They promulgate corn all over the world. And then this disease shows up called pellagra. And pellagra is a vitamin deficiency. And then a few hundred years later, we come to realize that actually what that wood ash was doing was making the B vitamin niacin bioavailable by shifting the pH of the corn. Now, obviously, the Aztecs didn't understand about pH. They didn't understand about vitamins. They didn't understand about bioavailability. But the magic of evolution is that it had, you know, through a process that was smarter than the conscious intelligence of an individual, figured out this very elegant solution and made it just sort of cultural tradition, right? This is what we've always done. And the more and more you look at these cultural traditions, the more you realize that they're doing things which are functionally quite smart. But that the problem is, is that when you're someone like Richard Dawkins, who has that fantastic imperial British arrogance, uh, that, you know, you're like, it doesn't make any bloody sense to me, so it can't be any use. <laughs> well, that same thing is actually on display. I feel like uh, so much of the 
post literate, if you will, the new age uh, is just one piece of this. But like so much, so many of the people alive today uh, have moved out of the scholastic and objective print press word of knowledge type thing and moved in, in like a Marshall McLuhan sense moved out of that and into this resonant acoustic oral tradition stuff that's been revived and, and reinvigorated by the internet. And we're watching another jettisoning as people differentiate from rationality, just throwing out reason, you know? And it's like, Mm -hmm. but that there's, there's an opportunity in that. There's an opportunity when you realize that there is no such thing as objectivity to kind of take the, the like healthy anthropologist perspective on your own thinking to view it the same way that you might, if you were a, a woker Dawkins approaching (laughs) (laughs) Mesoamerican agriculture and saying, okay, now I know that this is, I know this is bound culturally. I know that this is, uh, you know, conditioned and framed in a particular way, but let me just, engage it as if it has functional value and that in a way like you know we know that you can't separate the observer from the experiment like we know that at least in its conventional framing that the scientific method is not really sufficient you know that you can't truly repeat an experiment because the wider a frame you draw around it the more you include all of these previously invisible factors and you end up with these situations where you know you run the same botanical experiment 2 weeks apart underground and yet the moon's tidal forces are still influencing things and so that yeah. there's there's always this what in lazy new age post critical view would be that you know, you're part of the experiment, therefore you can change it. But it's like, that's missing it entirely. It's that there's, there's always that, that X factor, there's always the unknown part. And if we maintain an attitude of humility towards that, then we get to play with the tools of reason without being Mm -hmm. totally dominated by them. That if we assume an as if attitude toward all of these different cognitive toolkits available to us, then we get to move into like almost like a supra rational. You're actually more effective as a critical thinker than you yep. are if you limit yourself in that way. Well, that's the, a lot of, you know, the driving force of sort of, you know, when people, people have totally different terminologies when they're talking about rational, right? I mean, totally different things, right? So, you know, I think a great example of this is, you know, the Enlightenment was the age of reason. But then, you know, if you read like Adam Smith's two books, right, you know, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, it's clear that he his vision of reason was, you know, this thing that was like something that was really hard work, that it was an emergent property of cycling through a lot of different emotional and cognitive states, and that it like was something that took real tenacity and work. And I have very much the same view of reason because uh, Adam Smith and I have the same day job. Uh, We're both tutors. And, you know, when you work with kids, I mean, it is such a great place to see what a pre-cultural human looks like. Right. You know, the human (laughs) arrived and you are like, you know, you said earlier, you're literally taking them through 
tens of thousands, millions of years of cultural evolution in a condensed time span. And so, you know, one of the great examples is there's, uh, it's, you know, occasionally you read something awesome and then you try and find it again and you can never find it again in the book. This is one of those. But it, it, there was a, there, at some point I read about, I think it was Roger Bacon, who was a medieval mathematician in England. And he estimated that at that time, it would take somebody 40 years to learn all the mathematics then known. And at that point, basically, humanity had figured out Algebra 2. Um, so, you know, the, the point is, is that the amount of time in which we teach things keeps getting collapsed down into less and less time. Children learn their colors earlier. They're able to acquire all sorts of concepts much, much, much earlier. But because you're seeing that process, you're getting a very different sense of what reason is. And really, I think when we talk about reason, we're describing a very specific cognitive state, and that is reflection. It is that slow thinking where you are sifting through all the things that you have and then able to see whether what you believe is really a good fit for the available evidence. And the irony is, is that, you know, people like Dawkins, even though they bang on about reason all the time, are actually, in my, in my assessment, not very reflective individuals, right? They may reflect on some things, they reflect on how to zing other people, but they're not <laughs> reflecting on their core assumptions. And at the end of the day, you know, the, one of the oldest traits in human history is the tendency to think that our tribe are the people and that everybody else is sort of this demonic idiot group, right? That naive realizing that you're talking about. And the reality is, is that, you know, Richard Dawkins is part of that sort of weird tribe, that Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic tribe that, you know, has science as its high priest. Everybody must follow science. And, you know, South Park has already done an amazing job of satirizing Dawkins. So I really don't need to do it. Thanks, Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Um, but, you know, that's, that's really what's going on. So I don't think that, you know, for, for so long, right, the flag of science has been in the hands of essentially narrow-minded bigots who really have drawn a line around their tribe and said that all other tribes, which they call religion uh, or some sort of pre, you know, primitive savagery, are worthless. And I have no desire of living that way, and I don't consider what they do science, because science is about changing your mind in light of all available evidence. It's not about petty tribalism. And, you know, science is really about this core principle, the scientific principle of, you know, that reality is not something that individual humans are good at knowing. It's a thing that exists outside of our head. And in order to make sense of it, it takes a community effort. Because I may try and make sense of science, but I have blind spots that, by definition, because they're blind spots, I am blind to. And so I need Michael to say, hey, I understand that your view makes sense here to you, but it doesn't actually make sense from where I'm standing, so let me show you another set of perspectives. And then my job is to then, you know, slow my roll, handle my own emotions, and be willing to be reflective and be like, Oh, fuck, I got, you know, I got a naive realism there. I got a blind spot. He's right. Like, this is a much better model. And so I don't think that we can do better than uh, a very old religious story, which is the story of the blind men and the elephant. Um, 
And, you know, that's a really, really good way, I think, to think about this moment, because that elephant is, you know, 60 million scientific papers, 130 million books, all of these different cultures from all these different times and places. And there are seven and a half billion blind men. And now it's our job to go and feel our way around these things. And then through conversations like this, and thank God for podcasting, you know, we have the ability to go and tease out those answers and feel our way around this giant thing and start to make sense of it. That seems why I feel like when I look into the, the future of research, it just seems like the predominant cultural activity in another 30 to 50 years, especially given how, you know, scholarship in its original etymological sense uh, as sort of related to leisure, you know, and we've got a, a few decades from now, uh, at least according to Yuval Harari, who whose career started out, I thought, kind of poking fun at the religion of Silicon Valley before he became its St. Paul with like homo deus <laughs> and this other stuff. You know, like the, the first time I encountered this guy's work, he was... He was examining Silicon Valley, this sort of computational totalism from the perspective of an anthropologist and kind of pointing out that this has replaced the religion of capitalism, which replaced the church. And it, it was it was very, uh, you know, remote and studious. And then lately his work has been sort of taken up and championed as the argument for us being obsoleted by machines. But so, so Bill Gates reads his latest book and writes this great piece about how he's, he's starting to get concerned about what happens when in another 30 years, 50% of human beings are unemployable. And so I kind of imagine like in this, in this hypothetical future that most people spend their time engaged in one form or another of exegesis that we're all just sort of like that the central religious activity because and that's that's the kind of proposition that Harari and, and Gates make is that we've always been absorbed in religious activity and ritual and game and that maybe what we've got to do here is keep this the purpose that people experience by participating in something greater than themselves keep that institutionalized by involving everyone in a game of knowledge construction or like insight extraction from this tsunami of data that we're going to have. And, you know, presumably we're all going to be on some sort of universal basic income or, you know, sucking from the, the IV of Google or whatever. Um, and so, I mean, I just, you know, maybe this is a projection, you know, because we tend to, just see the future as sort of a, a grotesque exaggeration of our present day lives. <laughs> I kind of imagine a future in which the organization and interpretation of our records is the central activity of the human species. And that uh, we're all sitting there predominantly exploring and mining and gardening within this virtual reality space that is a psychogeographic map of all of our records of human experience. Um, yeah, in that world, that uh, this kind of activity becomes the dominant thing. And also because 
did you read the inevitable kevin kelly oh yeah 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 Yeah, so you know so he's got that great that great part in there where he's talking about how as the cost of answers approaches zero that the cost Mm, of questions starts to rise and that he imagines a future in which the real value is identifying the 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 question you know so when you're talking about the uh, blind men and the elephant that it's almost like the like we have to get people excited about learning on the one hand as like an emotional res- adaptation to this accelerating world like either they're going to like it or they're going to hate it it's you know you you got to you're going to be learning for the rest of your life yeah and and the point is is that you know you should like it and you know i mean if you look at little kids they're curious they love to learn right and school specifically you know because of this process of indoctrination fucks that up right because it basically creates all these feelings of worthlessness and inadequacy when you make a mistake that's the social signal that you get and what you should get as a social signal when you make a mistake is like oh that's interesting why did that happen it should be intense curiosity about mistakes so that you want to understand why they happened and then use them to improve your process so that's that. And, you know, this 50% of people who are unemployable, mostly what you need to do is you need to unfuck them up, right? And you need to help them transition back into, you know, what they are hardwired to want to do, right? Dopamine is what's released when people learn things. And that's what people want to do. And, you know, I'm related to a lot of the sort of people that Richard Dawkins deplores. And, uh, you know, I, you mean I Kansans? Hosp- Kansans, you know, these fucking savages with that Jesus. And, you know, and, you know, I like a lot of Arabs, like Arabs have sent me much delicious baklava over the years. And so, you know, again, like I like these people and the reality is they're the same as the rest of us. But like the rest of us, they've blindly picked up cultural intuitions. And many of those cultural intuitions are very old cultural intuitions. And there are many of the same cultural intuitions that have come out of convergent cultural evolution to the same environment, which is the environment of herding, right? Both the Scots-Irish who make up the sort of Rust Belt, the Midwest, you know, the hillbillies um, are Scots-Irish and they were herders. And herders, and you know, guess who else were herders? The Bedouins, right? Camels, all of that good stuff. And if you're a herder, you don't, there's no value around reading or learning because now your eyes are off your flock, right? So those are all, that's right. And so why would you do that? That's the basis of your prosperity. And you have strong territoriality because I can come over and I can steal your sheep or your goats or your camels. And, you know, so you establish a reputation as the kind of guy you don't fuck with. Right. And anybody who comes near my property, I fucking kill them. Um, so, you know, that's the reality. But those are old intuitions that don't necessarily make sense anymore. And by the way, you know, in the same way, Richard Dawkins' arrogance as a cultural intuition no longer makes any sense. That's something that Dawkey is going to have to work through because, you know, he he comes from that aristocratic, you know, I went to a school, I went to Eton, which is like where Prince William went and all of that. So the upper class twit is a phenomenon that I am immensely familiar with. And Richard Dawkins is the poster child for upper class twits. 
There's an amazing, I think it was, I can't remember if it was The Guardian or The New Statesman, review of uh, Richard Dawkins wrote this book, An Appetite for Wonder. And the title of the review was The Closed Mind of Richard Dawkins. Oh. And it just talks about and it just talks about Richard Dawkins, you know, being in, you know, wherever in Africa where he grew up in the, you know, in the twilight years of the British Empire and just his utter lack of interest in any other culture or what the rest of these human beings were up to. What was a doc he's up to? Um, so, you know, the point is, is that Richard Dawkins has that imperial arrogance and that's culturally evolved as well, right? Because... So much of the power of the aristocracy rests on cultivating this air of superiority and I'm better than you. And that's how people are, you know, sort of like confused. They're like, are they better than me? I don't know. Right. There's when you read about any of these rebellions, there's a process of sort of demystifying the overlords where you come to realize that actually they're not different. They're actually not so smart. They maybe don't haven't read the books that they're talking about. And then at a certain (laughs) point, you pull back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz and feel comfortable challenging them. And it's no different with these intuitions of intellectual authority. What I'm really excited about is helping make, you know, all of my relatives in the vast hinterland realize that many of these academics have never read the books that they're talking about. So there's this great line in Russ Roberts, who's a Stanford economist, uh, has this book called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And it's all about how, you know, many years later, for the first time, you know, after 40 years of being a professional economist, he finally read Adam Smith's other book. And that it's quite embarrassing to admit that he's never read it. And people really should, because it changes your understanding of what Adam Smith meant when he said self-interest. And it wasn't selfishness at all. And he's le- he says that most professional economists have never read this other book either. So well, there are all these amazing things that are going to come out when people start to realize that for years and years and years, this sort of very selfish version of capitalism, this you know, with this rational agent theory, was based on the fact that most economists had never read Adam Smith's other book. And when that happens, it is going to be so entertaining. It is going to be the show of a lifetime. But those are the sorts of things that are going to really destroy those intuitions around authority and where we're going to be like, you know, you know, nobody fucking knows what they're talking about, right? You can't vest your trust in any human authority. And the only authority is reality itself. And then we need to provide mechanisms where we can all make sense of reality based on the available evidence. And then we have the ability to go and fact check to each other. But it's from that uh, collected human intelligence that prosperity emerges. It's that hive mind working together. So part of it is, is that, you know, are, this, are these 50% unemployable? No, they're doing the, they'll be doing the real work that is what actually generates human wealth. It's just that for a very long time, we haven't understood what the secret of human success is. And now Joe Henrik has written this book, The Secret of Our Success, which finally we know what humanity's secret sauce is. And humanity's secret sauce is social intelligence. Individually, we're bad at figuring out why things happen, but we're amazing at ganging up on problems and breaking them down together. And, you know, 
that's the real point is just that, you know, it's radically reinventing those assumptions about what humans are really good at and then restructuring a society that is primeval yet contemporary that draws on those best assumptions of how we work. So it's going to be a golden age and we get to live through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're you're reminding me of, you know, David Loy, who devoted his entire career as a writer to reminding people who have or explaining to people who have never actually read the work of Charles Darwin that Darwin's massive emphasis, you know, he did like a, a, a like an index of origin mm -hmm. of species and descent of man. He's like, you know, Darwin talks about love like almost a hundred times in the origin of species, <laughs> you know, like the survival yeah. of the fittest wasn't even his term. And there's like this whole thing yeah. about how, you know, originally he was the co-author of the Royal Society paper on natural selection with Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a working stiff, you know, and he had, he had a very, as opposed to Darwin's sort of bourgeois attitude uh, as a gentleman scientist this guy was collecting specimens in order to fund his research and so he had a very mm -hmm. blue collar disposition and saw and i think was an influence on darwin in the articulation of this theory also that the social component of evolution may actually be the leading driver and so you know you've got uh, i don't know if you read uh, richard doyle's book Darwin's Pharmacy, but given your, your no. penchant for evolutionary stuff, I think you'd really get a kick out of it. He looks at how Darwin's emphasis on sexual selection means that the driver for the evolution of intelligence is in that social relationship, is in mm. the communication of sexual fitness, which at least in our lineage, in our, in our line, is through communication is through right. effective language is through eloquence and breaking breaking down the boundaries between one mind and another through eloquent speech and so he basically makes the, the this this case that that love and sex are behind the sort of ratcheting phenomenon that we're caught up in now that's that's that it's that trying to find that union that intimacy and it's like again it's getting back to that emotional basis it's the it's like yearning to find your completion in a group of people or in you know a lover or whatever that is the the entire fundament it's the engine for all of the stuff that you're talking about that leads to this sort of this global collective knowledge creation activity and uh yeah and and you just you look at you look at human behavior, right? Like, you know, humans are I don't know if you've read Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. No. no. Okay, so it's See, about this is like we're like a yin yang of books. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it should be. But see, this is this, by the way, is an undoing project, right? Okay. Where there are, you know, humans, humans are like, so it's about Kahneman and Tversky, right? Who did all the work on, you know, uh, thinking fast and slow. Um, and, you know, these are two guys who couldn't be more different, right? You know, Kahneman was sort of very buttoned up and sort of like reserved. And then Tversky was this big extroverted personality who basically thought everybody was an idiot, but thought that Kahneman was great. 
And so it's amazing because when you read the book, the whole time I was reading the book, all I was thinking about was bees doing their waggle dance. Where these two guys are sort of like, you know, they're attracted and they're doing this little dance around each other. And then, you know, they sort of work their way through this project. And then, you know, towards the end of the book, the relationship falls apart, right? And why does it fall apart? It falls apart because Tversky starts taking the credit and taking more of the credit. And that destroys the trust and the thing falls apart. But that process is really the core of human innovation. That's how that idea sex and that how that Voltronification is coming. And, you know, I go on Chris Ryan and Chris and Ryan and I are doing our little idea sex here. But then you hear this and you're like, man, I want to have idea sex with Hunter. And so then, you know, now we're here and there is this yin yang that goes on. So we're trading socially useful information here where you're like, okay, Darwin's pharmacy. Okay. So I'm making it out of that. Going to read that. And then, you know, and oh, oh, what's this? Oh, okay. David Lloyd. Okay. I'm adding that into my thing. Right. And back and forth and back and forth, but we're exchanging useful social information that we'll be able to incorporate into our toolkit as we then go out into the world. But as you know, there's that, when your piece, you open with that amazing quote, uh, from, uh, is it from Neuromancer or no? No, it was, William Gibson said it in, uh, I think in just a random interview. It's, it's yeah. quoted all the time. Yeah. Well, so the quote is, I believe that the future exists. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah. 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 And that's the point. The future exists. All these pieces are out there. They're lying around there. Right. But it's unevenly distributed. Right. And, you know, you knew about Darwin's pharmacy and you knew about David Lloyd and I didn't know. And now you shared them. Right. And it's so much of this. You know, what do we do with the straight A conspiracy? There was all this science that had built up in academia, but it was scattered across seven different fields of psychology and neuroscience. And it never been put together in a form that the average person could pick up or appreciate. So we package it together and put it in a form that could move. And then, you know, the reality is that there are people who are going to read this book and they're going to pirate it. They're going to make it available for free on the internet and we won't see one red cent. And that's okay because ultimately the most important thing is this information space. And if you create a better information space, then it ultimately will redound to my benefit in some way that I can't necessarily track. There will also be people who will take those ideas and they will take them and they will repackage them. That has already happened. There are people who have remixed those ideas and they have made them better than what we had, right? So for example, you know, we talked about this, we have this idea of fix it, focus practice, and you know, the idea of embracing your mistakes, which I've been emphasizing here. Well, I had a conversation with someone in the mixed mental arts community named Christopher Leon Price, and he framed the whole thing in terms of video games and how, you know, when you die in a video game, you know, you incorporate those lessons for the next time you play. And that, that it's really about embracing that art of losing. And I'm like, well, he improved on what we did. And that's how it's supposed to work. If it's supposed to be, and, you know, Joe Henrik has this great analogy, you know, Newton had that famous line, if I've seen further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And Henrik says, there are no giants. It's hobbits all the way down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just all these hobbits climbing on each other to see further. But we now have all the tools in order to be able to get the hobbits together 
stand on each other's shoulders and see farther than we've ever seen. And we get to be in this moment where there is that great E.O. Wilson consilience that is happening, this great coming together and this great connecting of the dots. And how fun that we get to be alive for that. Totally. So yeah, I think the last, the last idea I want to run past you here, because we mentioned this at the very beginning and <clears throat> talking about that hive mind activity and talking about idea sex. And, you know, for the last few billion years, we've been in these eukaryotic organisms. Our DNA is locked inside our cells. And, you know, there's, there's evidence that there might be some uh, low-level horizontal gene transfer going on between our mm-hmm. stomach flora and the food we eat and all that. But, and we're, we're at that point now where we're starting to get into like the uh, spooky and exciting terrain with like direct genetic engineering with CRISPR and these kind of technologies. But by and large, we remain uh, isolated from one another except through the Congress of our ideas and sexual meiotic exchange. However, that seems like that whole process, like we might... We're, we're on the cusp of getting back to something resembling bacterial direct transfer of stuff, mm-hmm. and of identity specifically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was recently an experiment where they, you know, they, they implant the chips into people's brains and they turn the <laughs> light on. One person sees the light and the other person's visual yeah. cortex goes off. And it seems kind of obvious that where this is headed is that you're, you've got sort of like knowledge becomes sort of like a a cloud service and that as soon as one person learns something, then everyone else in the network learns that thing, you know? So that's the, the, but that would also seem to erode the, that, that process of individual reflection and the solitude of research. And so I'm curious what you, what is the sort of best outcome that you imagine or like the best world that, that you foresee where we are capable of just downloading our insights into one another where like that, I mean, it's on, on one hand, it seems like the process of making mistakes and learning from them is just going to be like, cubed like suddenly it'll just be all of us are leveling up together all the time on another Mm -hmm. level it seems like we lose something fundamentally human in this in this process where we lose the fringe you know and and like so much of of insight especially paradigm changing insight comes from the you know isolated periphery of the society so like what like what's the best case scenario to hope for here and what well, do think, you hope for? Well, I mean, I think that's the thing, right, is, is that, you know, tending towards that information space, but inevitably part of human psychology is, is that orthodoxies settle in. And so, you know, just, you know, just as there's a price to a genetic monoculture, uh, there would be a real price to uh, an intellectual monoculture where we all sort of had the same thoughts and, you know, the hive mind was too integrated. So I think that the tension is that tension between, you know, that there is some, you you want working together, but at the same time, you want enough diversity where people have different thoughts, can challenge the orthodoxy, can unseat the orthodoxy, so that you have the grist for evolution, 
right? Like evolution relies on variation. So you need that variation and you have need the ability to shift power away from you know, essentially the, you know, the 10,000 pound gorilla, right? Hewlett Packard towards this plucky little startup called Apple, uh, that has these new wacky ideas. So the question is, how do we do that? And I think that, you know, what there, there may be whatever, whatever technologies there are, but people will experiment with these things as humans have always experimented. I mean, we experimented long before there was science, right? We tried out different tools. We tried out different ways of organization and people will continue to experiment. And then humans will track the results of those experiments. And they will be like some guy who puts a chip in his head and the chip fucking fries his brain. And then we'll all be like, oh, don't want to use that. That shit's bad. And then, you know, there'll be people who are willing to experiment more and more and more with the chips of the brain and maybe they get better. And at a certain point, they're working well enough that people, you reach some sort of tipping point and people are like, man, I can't believe that nobody ever had a chip in their brain. But, you know, I don't, I, I think that the, the really powerful thing about this way of thinking is that ultimately, the great thing is, is that you don't have to know because, you know, I don't think that any human at human history has really ever known where things have been going. We've always been making it up as we go along. And the nature of things is that you just keep climbing hobbits and you just keep learning and you just keep trying to see a little bit further. And then, you know, where, where does it go? I don't know. What's the best case scenario? But I have faith that, you know, as that, you know, because of that social intelligence, people will be watching and they will be tracking. And the challenge is making sure that we clearly understand and can make sense of what's going on so that when problems emerge, we're able to handle them. But, you know, the, for now, the, the main thing is, I think, sort of the core is that you know, we've all inherited a bunch of old cultural baggage, uh, whether you're an upper class twit like Richard Dawkins or whether you're some of my relatives in Kansas or whether you're me uh, with, you know, various weird intuitions from academia or whether you're the people who have fed me so much delicious baklava in the Middle East. And we're all going to have to go through this process of reflecting on what we picked up from our moms and our dads and figuring out what really makes sense for all of us going forward. But there are a lot of interesting conversations to be had. And in the end, because of that social intelligence, that's the thing that I think humans love more than anything. There's nothing more than a really, really good round of uh, intercourse uh, or idea sex. And, you know, it's a great time to be alive. And, you know, who knows? Maybe at some point we get uh, meteored. And then, like the dinosaurs, it's all over in the blink of an eye. Um, but, you know, until we're here, we might as well just enjoy the combo, right? Totally. Dude, I feel like there are so many yeah. other ways that we could have taken this. And perhaps yeah. perhaps one day we can ensure that this isn't just a one-night stand for the idea <laughs> Well, you know, as I've uh, there's a there's a girl that I've sort of been seeing, and you know, I've made it very clear that you know, while for genetic sex uh, I will practice monogamy, for idea sex I am just going to be a slut, a huge slut. So I look forward to doing this again, Michael. It was great fun, Thanks, man. Yeah. and uh, and I'm looking forward to at some point coming down to Austin. It seems like an awesome town. 
and uh, maybe even coming into your uh, copper skied aquarium. Oh, it's like an idea orgy over here. You're invited. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Cool, sounds man. Where amazing. do people find your work? Where do oh, you send them? It. Yeah, well, I they can come to, there's a Mixed Mental Arts uh, Facebook page. There's uh, MixedMentalArts.co, and we're going to be doing a Mixed Mental Arts belt system that is basically an initiation ritual to initiate people into the global village. Because hazing, um, hazing is paleo and contemporary. Exactly, exactly. You will walk the sea of paddles. It'll be amazing. <laughs> You'll love it. Um, and then, you know, there's a Twitter pay, there's a Twitter account. There's, you know, all of that good stuff. It's not, you know, it's the internet. It's not that hard to find anyone. Um, and if you Google image search, you'll find lots of embarrassing things about me, which you can have lots of great fun with. Perfect. Um, dude, thanks again for being on the show, man. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, let me know when this is out so that I can, uh, promote the shit out of Michael. I will do that. Yeah. It'll be a few weeks. I'll, I'll let you know. Okay. Have a great one, dude. Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support this show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.